Father, we do trust that as we come into this place together, that you are at work sanctifying us, that you are at work setting us apart as holy, belonging to you, preparing us to be your bride. And as you do that, Lord, you shape the way we think. You shape what our hearts are all about, what our desires are, what our values are. And you do that as we look to your word. So we pray that you would sanctify us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going back to our... our, uh, series in the book three of the Psalms. So this morning we've come to Psalm 79. So I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to Psalm 79. And would you please stand as we honor the reading of God's Word. A Psalm of Asaph. O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food, the flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. We have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. How long, O Lord? Will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name. For they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. Do not remember against us our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Let the avenging of the outpoured blood of your servants be known among the nations before our eyes. Let the groans of the prisoners come before you. According to your great power, preserve those doomed to die. Return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbors the taunts with which they have taunted you, O Lord. But we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. This is God's word. Let's please have a seat. You know, so far in our journey through this book three of the Psalms, we've seen that many of the Psalms have come out of a very dark time in the life of Old Testament Israel. Uh, these aren't exactly, you know, pick-me-up Psalms. As, we're, as we hear the sorrow and the desperation uh, from the pen of the writer, so we could ask, why do we spend time in them? And there's a couple of reasons for that. I would say probably the first and foremost reason is that, well, this is part of God's inspired word. Uh, thinking back to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So there's a sense that this too, dark teaching, is somehow profitable for us. Beyond that, I think these psalms can be helpful for someone who's experiencing their own darkness, or it's preparing them for times that they may face ahead that may be dark. And how do you deal with those? How do you work through personal struggle, whether they're a result of circumstances that are hard or just the inner turmoil of what's going on emotionally and spiritually in your own heart and mind? I think psalms like this give us insight into God and His character. 
They give us insight into our own needs in ways that might not otherwise come to light. And these insights can be the things that get us through these personal struggles. So at a minimum, when we look at a psalm like this, we know that when we face times of despair, that we're not alone, that the psalmists, many of the psalmists have experienced these exact same things. So when you feel completely alone and isolated and despairing, know that you're not the first one to feel this way. And in fact, biblical writers have felt that way and have written about it. And they've written about it in such a way that they've given it to the congregation of God's people so that they can do it corporately. They can go through these experiences corporately. They can know how it is that they're supposed to pray and work themselves through these own personal struggles of times. So what do we learn as we look at this particular psalm? I think we learn some things about the nature of God. And the one perhaps thing that we learn the most is that God is a very personal God. God is a personal God. And I think that's really important in our day and age because we tend to live in a culture that even while it may be broadly evangelical or at least shaped by a biblical world and life view, much of that world and life view is, whether it's recognized or not, a bit of a deistic approach to God, as though He's distant. He's there, but He's distant and He's not really engaged. He's a very impersonal being that's just looking down, set things in motion, and He's letting the, the letting them unwind as they would. But we learn instead from psalms like this that that's not the case, that it is very personal, that it can be prayed to in a very personal way, a way that communicates there is is a unique relationship that exists between the the one who's praying and the God to whom he is praying. And so I hope that comes out a little bit about what we see. And the first thing we see comes out in the fact that we see that he is a jealous God. He is a jealous God. In a simple way, you could say an impersonal God is not a jealous God. He's a distant God. He doesn't really care one way or the other. But a God who is jealous has a reason to be jealous. You do not get jealous in a, without having some kind of very intimate relationship. And I think it is interesting, too, when, when we think about the context of this particular psalm, he's writing about when Jerusalem was uh, destroyed at the hands of the Babylonians in 586, 587 B.C., and he's talking about the terrible things that happened during that time, and that's what we read about in the opening verses. O oh God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. They have given the bodies of your servants to the birds of the heavens for food. The flesh of your faithful to the beasts of the earth. They have poured out their blood like water all around Jerusalem, and there was no one to bury them. We have become a taunt to our neighbors, mocked and derided by those around us. This is part of the prayer that he's lifting up. Now, a few weeks ago, we looked at Psalm 74, and it was very similar, also talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. It was as though the psalmist wanted to take God on a tour of what he was seeing. And this has some overlap in that, but there's a little bit different flavor to it. There's a, what's interesting about this is you have every reason, if you're just an observer of what's going on, to think that God has just completely abandoned you. Does God even exist? How could things like this happen if God really existed? But there is no sense throughout any of this psalm that he's doubting the existence of God or that he's even doubting that God is ultimately behind the very destruction that he sees. And that's what's, that's what's so interesting. This is written by a man who is, who is, knows why this is happening. 
He knows that it is, a, is an outpouring of the jealous rage of God. Now, we could ask, how does he possibly know that? Well, he knows that because the Scriptures before this have been continually beating the drum that this is exactly what's going to unfold with a nation that is unfaithful to their God. Jeremiah had been spouting it over and over and over again during his ministry when he lived through the fall of Jerusalem. So it's not as though there wasn't a prophet who was actually alive telling them about what's about to happen. And sure enough, it happened. But Jeremiah didn't even, while he may have had a word from God to say this to the people, he wasn't solely relying on something brand new for all through the book of Deuteronomy. It goes into great detail exactly what is unfolding. And it's in Deuteronomy chapter 28, and I want you to consider some of the things that Deuteronomy says. This is way back in the time of Moses when he brought them to the mountain of God, where he met them after he brought them out of their exodus, their time in slavery with Egypt. He meets with them, and he gives them his, his, his law because they are now his people. I am entering into a unique relationship with you among all the peoples of the earth. You're going to be my people. I'm going to be your God. We're going to be, as it were, married together. And as a result of having this covenant relationship with each other, here is the way you are to live. And that's, that's, why, we, that's why they, instead of all the world, were given the laws of God. You have the obligation to keep these laws because I have made you my own. And he says, if you don't do that, if you fail to keep these laws, here's what's going to happen. Beginning in verse uh, 20, it's, the whole chapter is about it, so I'm just going to read a portion of it. Uh, the Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration in all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because, because you have forsaken me. Jumping down to verse 25, the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. And you shall be a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. And your dead body shall be food for all birds of the air and for the beasts of the earth. And there shall be no one to frighten them away. Which is exactly what we just read. Exactly what he observed. The Lord will strike you with the boils of Egypt and with tumors and scabs and itch of which you cannot be healed. The Lord will strike with you madness and blindness and confusion of mind. And you shall grope at noonday as the blind grope in darkness. And you shall not prosper in your ways. You shall be only oppressed and robbed continually, and there shall be no one to help you. You shall betroth a wife, but another man shall ravish her. You shall build a house, but you shall not dwell in it. You shall plant a vineyard, but you shall not enjoy its fruit. Your ox shall be slaughtered before your eyes, but you shall not eat any of it. Your donkey will be seized before your face, but, you shall, not, but shall not be restored to you. Your sheep shall be given to your enemies, but there shall be no one to help you. Your sons and your daughters shall be given to another people, while your eyes look on and fail with longing for them all day long, but you shall be helpless. A nation that you have not known shall eat up the fruit of your ground and of all your labors, and you shall be only oppressed and crushed continually, so that you are driven mad by the sights that your eyes see. This is the situation that they are facing as they're going through the through this. I mean, if you can imagine, we can't imagine the devastation that was being wrought in this time. It would be like Washington, D.C. falling to an enemy. 
But not just falling, it will have fallen because all the other major cities in the nation have also fallen and been devastated. So much so that there's not a single person left who doesn't have a son or a daughter or a father who's been captured, killed, slaughtered, or carried into captivity. If you're one of the few that remain in the land, you've had family members and friends that have disappeared, been killed before your eyes, so much so, so much death, that it is said that blood was literally flowing like rivers through the streets of Jerusalem. Now, this was after they'd experienced two years under siege. And you know what happens under a siege? As we continue to go on in Deuteronomy, he explains it out. I'll just summarize. But cannibalism happens. You will begin to, you'll begin to deny, uh, you will begin to, well, let me just read it. I'm going to mess this all up. They shall besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trust come down throughout all your land, and they shall besiege you in all your towns throughout all your land, which the Lord has given you. And you shall eat the fruit of your womb. You shall eat the fruit of your womb, the flesh of your sons and daughters whom the Lord your God has given you in the siege and in the distress in which your enemy shall distress you. The man who is the most tender and refined among you will begrudge food to his brother, to the wife he embraces, and to the last of the children whom he has left, so that he will not give to any of them any of the flesh of his children whom he is eating, because he has nothing else left in the siege and in the distress with which your enemy shall distress you in all your towns. The most tender and refined woman among you, who would not venture to set the sole of her foot on the ground because she is so delicate and tender, will begrudge to the husband she embraces, to her son and to her daughter, her afterbirth that comes out from between her feet and her children whom she bears, because lacking everything, she will eat them secretly in the siege and in the distress with which your enemy shall distress you in your towns. We cannot even conceive of what they went through until, what does he say above? With regard, you are driven mad by the sights that your eyes see. You would have lost your job. You would have lost your home your land, your family members, and you would be left desolate. And what's interesting about this is the psalmist who's experiencing these things, he, he doesn't think that God has abandoned them. In fact, what he says is the opposite. I know, I'm familiar with Deuteronomy, this is a result of the fact that we have forsaken our God. Now, I don't want you to think in this legalistic terms, well, if you don't keep the law, you know, God's going to smack you down as though as though this, you know, the policeman upstairs. Now, the reason for that is that he has brought you into an intimate relationship. The best way to think of it, which is often an illustration used in the Bible, is between a husband and a wife. And what happens when a husband and a wife is unfaithful to their husband or their wife, their spouse? The spouse grows jealous. And it's a, it's a righteous jealousy. Because this is this is his spouse. So this jealous rage that is burning of God is not the evidence of the policeman who's ready to bring down the hammer of judgment, but because a husband has been betrayed and he is jealous for the love of his wife. So when we say, what do we learn about this? We learn because God's jealous rage is being poured out, there is in fact the seed of the reality that there is a relationship there that is intimate, that God loves His bride. That's why He experienced 
the fire of his jealous rage. So there's a sense in which even the psalmist himself is bringing this out, the nature of the, the jealous rage, because it's a hint of the fact that they have a loving, there is a deep love from the Lord for his people. Verse 5 through 7, how long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? Will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your anger on the nations that do not know you and on the kingdoms that do not call upon your name, for they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his habitation. So his appeal is that, yes, I understand this is happening because I have forsaken you and your jealous rage is boiling over. I can only plead that you would redirect it, (laughs) redirect it to the other party and bring upon them the devastation that we are experiencing. That's the appeal. And why does he have any hope to express such an appeal? Because at the heart of it, the root of it, he knows that God's love burns fierce for his people. That's what's behind the jealousy. Secondly, we learn that he is a compassionate God. That's what he reflects on in verses 8 and 9. Do not remember against us our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. I love the way he goes through this. I mean, the psalmist gets that God's love burns deep for his people. And he also very much understands that the reason that it's come is because his people have forsaken him. They are guilty. There's no pleading to say, God, why are you doing this? He knows exactly why they're doing that. So all he can do is fall upon the compassion of the Lord. And he knows he's compassionate, again, because that love is real. But he also knows that compassion can't just be a blanket word. It has to come with something behind it. For God to be compassionate, to pour out compassion, there has to be a great cost. And that's why he says, atone for our sins. That's what has to happen. Compassion takes a a very real uh, form in the form of atonement for the sins. Now, what makes this an interesting thing is when you think about how how was Israel given instruction to make atonement for sin in the Old Testament? Well, they were to bring a sacrifice to the priests at the temple who would offer it before the Lord. But the temple itself has been destroyed. The priests have been slaughtered. There is no one to offer a sacrifice of atonement. There is no place to offer a sacrifice of atonement. And yet the psalmist knows that somehow there is something greater and beyond the temple and the priests that were earthly bound. He may not know exactly what it is, but he knows it must exist because God's love burns so brightly for his people. And it will require a measure of atonement for him to move his anger from her, his bride, his people, to the enemy nations that's brought this about. That's the reality of it. Now, we, from our perspective, know exactly how that was. The atonement was made by Jesus Christ going upon the cross. But what we need to understand about this is, What does that say, uh, again, about the deep personal nature of the love of God for His people? For if you go through, the reason that we go through the 
the details of how terrible the destruction of Jerusalem was is because if God is going to atone for the sin, we have to see something about the nature of what the sin deserved. And the worse that we understand the destruction of Jerusalem was gives us some measure of understanding what God Himself was having to experience in order to atone for that sin. Blood in the streets, the eating of your own sons and daughters, the trauma of the mind and the heart that would have resulted from seeing these things take place before your eyes. I mean, if you can imagine all of this aspect of the terrible nature of what it was is what God the Father went through in the giving of His Son to make atonement for His people. So, if you don't see how much God had to have loved His people in a very intimate, personal way, then you will be a people of no hope. But the psalmist understands God is personal, and His love is fierce. He is jealous for His people, but He is compassionate. Why is He compassionate? Again, because He loves His people. He loves His bride. While his, his anger and rage burns deep because of His jealousy, at the end of the day, He is about recovering His bride for His own name's sake. That's the other appeal that the psalmist is making. There is a sense in which he's saying, look, I don't want you to atone for me because I deserve it, because I know I don't. But I know you have written your name upon me. You have given me your name. And so for your name's sake, show compassion. Have compassion. Don't let the enemy say, where is their God? And I love that, this little subtle word, pronoun there. Where is their God? Where is their husband? Again, it's personal. It's personal. And lastly, it's powerful. God is powerful. His love is powerful. Verses 11 through 13 is the last appeal. Let the groans of the prisoners come before you according to your great power. Preserve those doomed to die. Return sevenfold into the lap of our neighbors the taunts with which they have taunted you, O Lord. But we, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. There is a looking into the future to see that, yes, we are your people. We are still your people. And we will forever be your people. And we will be in a position to recount your praise. While he's not experiencing that now, he's, he knows that that is what's in the future. Now, how does he know that? If not, of the fact that he understands that God's love is, is not only real, but it is powerful enough to bring resolution to the, to the trauma that they're experiencing. And again, I think this goes back to the psalmist realizing that all of this came about because of God's fierce anger. It wasn't happenstance. It wasn't by chance. It wasn't because another nation rose up that was stronger than Israel or whose God was stronger than God, the psalmist understands because of his understanding of Deuteronomy, because of the preaching of Jeremiah, that this has only happened because God brought it about. And if God is the powerful enough to bring it about, he's also powerful enough to stop it.
or to end it, to restore them. So there's a great confidence in this despairing prayer of the psalmist that it will one day be ended, so much so that we will be recounting your praise, that the atoning work that God does for his people will move them from a people who have been, who have been had their minds completely twisted in the trauma to being in a position where the, now they can utter genuine praise. I can't even begin to think what has to happen in the life of a person to go from such a traumatizing experience to a place where they're no longer devastated by that trauma anymore. But somehow, this personal, powerful, jealous love of God will accomplish it. And the hint that we know, of course, how is through the the atoning work that he accomplished on the cross through his own son. So what do I want you to walk away with this morning? Simply this. God's love is personal. It's personal for his people. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful that the psalmist can lead us down such a prayer of appeal recognizing your love in its many shapes and forms through its jealousy, through its compassion, and through its power to bring your people through their sin to a place of joy and gladness where they can recount your praise. For we know along that path you open our eyes to see how much you were willing to endure on our behalf to communicate how great your love is for us. Lord, I ask that as we walk away this morning, that you would remind us of that love and help us to walk in it. In Jesus' name, amen.